Good morning. It's great to see you. Uh, we are glad that you're here worshiping with us today. Um, and I uh, hope that you've had an opportunity to meet some of our wonderful church members here and been greeted accordingly. Um, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Alan Pittman, and I have the privilege of serving as uh, the senior pastor as well as one of the elders here. And uh, we are glad that you're with us today. When you came in, hopefully you picked up a worship guide. And on the back of the worship guide, there's a place where you can take notes uh, during the message if you'd like to follow along with us. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in a chair either near you or right underneath you. You can grab that Bible and use that this morning. If you need a Bible, like you don't have one at the house or you need one, feel free to take that with you. And that'll be our uh, gift to you uh, from our church family. Uh, we are uh, in the middle of a series right now as a church. Uh, we are looking at a series called Glory to God Through His Church. And this morning, uh, I want to kind of begin by identifying that we know that our church family, if you are a member of our church, if you were here last week, you know that we're kind of at a critical point in our church life right now. Uh, the elders made a recommendation uh, based on finances that we needed to dissolve a full-time staff position. And if you're a church member and you didn't know that, you should have received an email. Be sure and look at that. We'll be voting on this as a church family on October the 16th. And, and as we go through this season of our life as a church, and any time really, it's critical that we have unity. And so this morning, I just felt like it was appropriate for us to look at this topic of unity and what God's Word has to say about unity. You'll see at the beginning of your sermon notes, the title is Walk in Unity. And the reason that we should walk in unity is because as a body of believers walks in unity, it's in that, that's one of many ways, but it's in that that we can bring glory to God through His church. I do want to throw one other quick announcement out there. You should have seen it on the video, but if you want to be a part of our church family, if you feel like God is calling you to become a member and you've not gone through the membership class yet, we would love for you to come be a part of that membership class. The next class we're having is in two weeks. It's on Sunday night, October the 9th at 5 o'clock, and there'll be children's activities, Awana, and various things. So if you've got kids, they'll have a place to be while you're in class from 5 until 6.30. Because this is a wonderful church family, and we as a church body are seeking to bring glory to God through this church, and we would love for you to be a part of that process. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. It's in the New Testament. It's one of the letters that Paul wrote. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, and, and it's six chapters long. We're not going to look at all six. We're only going to look at a few verses out of chapter 4. But I do want you to know that the first three chapters of Ephesians are very rich in theology, in doctrine, in beliefs. And then he turns the corner in, in chapter 4, and he begins to tell us in the last three chapters how we're to live out our Christian beliefs. And the reality is this. We actually have a class right now, an equipping class, called Christian Beliefs. And the whole concept of that is not to just study doctrinal truths about who God is, but rather as we study who God is, we then go out and live it out. And so Christian beliefs, Christian doctrine, Christian theology must always be lived out in a practical way. And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. He's going to help us see how to live out some of our theological beliefs about who God is. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, I'll read through verse 6. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he was under arrest for his faith in preaching the gospel. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner 
worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity, and that's the primary aspect we're going to look at today, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, but great, oh sorry, that's a good verse too, but we're stopping at the end of verse 6. On your sermon notes, you're going to see some of the, the notes, uh, main points I want us to see out of this text. The first one is this, that we must live out God's calling on our lives. What do I mean by we must live out God's calling on our lives? Look at verse 1. The word calling and called is used twice there. He uses it two other times in this passage. But in verse 1, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. You're going to see at the very beginning of that verse in the English, at least in the English Standard Version, is the word therefore. Did you see that at the very beginning of verse 1? Anytime in scripture that you see the word therefore, you need to try to figure out what it's there for. And the reason therefore is there in this text is because, as I said, the first three chapters had to do with the theological truths of who God is and who we are as his people. And then now he's saying, let's live it out practically. And so he turns the corner. He doesn't leave the doctrine, but he helps us practically live out the doctrine and that's where he begins this process that we are to live in a way that's consistent with the calling that's on our lives now the reason I said that the first word in the English is therefore is because that's not the first word in the Greek if you're not aware of this the New Testament was originally written in the Greek and Greek the 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 verse in the Greek begins with the word urge you'll see in the ESV it's halfway through the verse it says I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It's interesting for us to see that Paul begins his sentence with the word urge. It carries with it a sense of urgency, no pun intended. It carries with it, we have to pay attention to this. It's a strong plea from Paul. He says, guys, I'm serious. We, as followers of Jesus, must live in this way. We're to live in a manner worthy of our calling. And you're like, it doesn't have the word live in there. It has the word walk. Look, look at it in verse 1. It says, I urge you, therefore, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What's the deal with the word walk? Well, if you're not already aware of this, the word walk is used often in the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, he uses it several times. And it carries with it the idea of, of walking out our faith, living out our faith, like making it an active faith and not just something we believe intellectually, but also something that we live out. The word walk has to do with living out our faith. As I said, it's used several times in the book of Ephesians. The word walk is used in six chapters seven times. And five of those times in Ephesians, it's used in verses four through six. Because he's saying this is the way that we walk out our faith. And so whenever I say we must live out, our, out God's calling on our lives, it's this area of walking it out. It's to live in a consistent way, a, a way that's consistent with the calling to which you have been called. What in the world does Paul mean when he says live in a way that's consistent with the calling to which you have been called? The first thing that God calls us to is to a relationship with him. You see, when you go back to the 
uh, Old Testament, when you go to the beginning, we find out that God created this world, that God made each one of us, and he made us in his image to bring him glory, to be in right relationship with him, but there's a very small, actually very large problem, and that's the word sin. That whenever we sin against God, whenever we rebel against God, whenever we disobey him, which by the way, guys, is 100% of us in this room, 100% of us watching online, 100% of us that's ever walked this planet, save one, and that's Jesus. All of us are sinners. We've gone our own way. And because we've gone our own way, we have been separated eternally from a holy, perfect God. But that's not the end of the story because God calls us into relationship with him. And the way he calls us into relationship with him is what he did through his son Jesus. That he sent his son Jesus who lived on this earth in the form of a man and did not sin. Like our punishment for our sin is death. Jesus never sinned and yet he was crucified on the cross for our sin. And then three days later he was raised to new life. So here is the deal. God first and foremost has called us into a relationship with him. The folks that Paul is writing this letter to are believers in Jesus. It's the church of Ephesus. They have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus and they followed him with, in baptism and they have been called out from who they were, once were into who God is making them to be. And this morning, perhaps some of you need to receive the call that the Lord has on your life to trust in him for salvation to turn from your sin, to repent of your sin, to acknowledge I am a sinner and I am hopeless without Jesus, but based on what he's done for me, I can be forgiven of my sins. So Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you come into my life? And so whenever Paul says in verse 1 that he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called, he said, guys, you've been called out of sin into life, so live it out. And what Paul is not saying is live in such a way so that you earn God's pleasure, a, a good pleasure and, and good graces. Because God does not get bribed into doing anything for us. We can't work our way to salvation. We should, however, be living out the salvation that God brings to us. I was talking to somebody this week about three aspects of salvation. There's kind of three aspects, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily call them phases, but three aspects of salvation. I'll walk through them real quickly. There's one called justification, one called sanctification, and one called glorification. Justification is when a person acknowledges their need for Jesus and repents of their sins and trusts in him and salvation comes into their life. It, it's a one-time experience that God radically changes our life. And then glorification, I'm going to leave that middle step out for a second. Glorification is whenever the time comes for our death or when the world comes to an end and we as followers of Jesus are in the presence of God and all sin is erased. And therefore we are in the glory of God and it's not what we have done but it's because of what Christ has done on our behalf that we are in a glorified body in the presence of God. But there is a long time in between, although uh, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years is not really all that long in the whole scheme of things. And that's where sanctification comes in. See, from the point that I say yes to Jesus to the day that I'm standing in the presence of God, God is calling me out to walk out my faith, to live in a manner that's worthy of the calling so that I'm becoming more and more sanctified, more and more holy, and more and more like Jesus. 
So whenever Paul says, live in a way that's consistent, that's worthy of the calling that you've been called to, he says, you've been saved by grace through faith, live it out. And because you're living it out, become more and more like Jesus. And as you become more and more like Jesus, you're going to walk in unity. So let's keep walking through here and see that as we're being sanctified, that we're being called to exhibit some certain virtues. Look down in verse 2. In verse 2, you'll see the second point, and that is that we are to be marked by humility, gentleness, and patience. To live out the manner of life that God is calling us to requires that we live in a way that exhibits humility, gentleness, and patience. We see that in verse 2. With all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, walk out your faith. I want us to look at those three words real quick, humility, gentleness, and patience. I want to describe what they aren't so that we understand what they are, because we might misinterpret what these words mean. Humility. Humility does not mean that we need to begin to think less of ourselves. Rather, it means that we are to think about ourselves less often. Do you follow the difference? Humility is not going, oh, I'm a horrible, despicable person, nobody will like me, and I'm, that's not humility. Humility is outside of the grace of God, I'm not really worth much, but God created me, therefore I have great value, but I don't need to place myself above everyone else. I need to think of myself less often. In Experiencing God, which I'm taking this semester in our equipping classes, today we talked about what it looks like to be God-centered instead of self-centered. We can't be God-centered if we're self-centered. So in other words, humility is critical so that we can see things through God's lens instead of ours. Humility means to be self-giving and self-sacrificing. It means to avoid pride and self-promotion. Humility involves us being willing to admit when we sin. So that's what humility is. He says that we're to also exhibit gentleness. I want us to really understand this, because gentleness does not mean being weak. Gentleness does not mean being a doormat. Rather, gentleness is strength, but it's strength under control. Did you know that Jesus describes himself as being gentle? Would you say that Jesus is weak? Absolutely not. There's a passage that we won't turn to, but you may jot it down. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus says this about himself. I am gentle and lowly in heart. The word gentle is the same word that we see for gentleness here. The word lowly is the same word we see as humility here. So whenever we say that we're to walk in humility and gentleness, it means we're living out the character traits that Jesus lives out so that we might reflect him to the world. And then the other word that I want us to see is the word patience in verse 2. Patience is not simply putting up with others. I don't like them. I'm going to put up with them. They get on my nerves. No, putting up with is not what patience is. Rather, patience is to lovingly bear with one another. Patience is difficult for many of us, right? Let's think of some reasons why patience is a difficult thing. First of all, we want others to be patient with us. We want everyone to be patient with us, but we don't want to be patient with them, right? That, that's a struggle that we have. 
get with me in the car sometime. Whenever I feel like doing a Sunday afternoon drive and I'm driving 25 mile an hour down the road and it's a 45, I get frustrated because the people behind me are all going to run over me. But if I'm trying to go 45 or maybe 50 in a 45, then I'm angry because the people in front of me won't go. We want people to be patient with us, but we don't show patience to them. Another reason why we don't show patience is because we don't get the other person. Like, how could they not be a Cowboys fan? How could they, you know, not like red velvet cake? Like, we don't get them, and so we aren't patient with each other. But God calls us to be patient with each other. Here's another reason why. Sometimes we're not patient with other people because people in our lives at times are EGR. You're like, what's EGR? Extra grace required. Before you go, yeah, I can list a few EGR people in my life. Just know that someone else in this room is thinking of you when they think of EGR, right? (laughs) All of us, to different degrees, are at times that require a little bit extra grace from other people. God calls us to gentleness, humility, and patience. These things tie directly into unity. Look at uh, the next statement on your sermon notes. It says that we are to walk in love and unity. The only way that we can walk in love and unity is if we show humility, gentleness, and patience. When we do show humility, gentleness, and patience, then it's a natural breeding ground, if you will, for love and unity. It all works together. You see, those who are marked by humility, gentleness, and patience automatically show love and we experience unity um, among each other. Verses 2, the end of verse 2 and verse 3 talks about that. He says, with patience, you're to bear with one another in love, and we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We see here that love helps us bear with one another. We better begin with our love for for God, right? Because if I start with my love for God, then I'm going to understand that everyone I come in contact with is a person worthy of me showing gentleness, humility, and patience to. Like everybody in my life, I should demonstrate love to them because of what the Father has done for me. And then, whenever I love them and exhibit that gentleness, humility, and patience towards them, then we're more likely to experience unity in our relationship together. But the problem comes in whenever we love ourselves more than others. If I love myself more than others, it's going to be hard for me to be humble. If I love myself more than others, it's going to be hard for me to be gentle. If I love myself more than others, it's going to be hard for me to be patient with other people. And so I think we can all identify, okay, on Monday this past week, I did a pretty good job. Oh, on Tuesday, it was lousy. Like, there may be like this deal where we're like this, but what Paul is calling us to, he's urging us, he's pleading with us to live in a way that's consistent with the calling that we've been called to. And if I've been called by God, by his grace, into salvation, to live it out, then I need to be living in such a way that exhibits love and unity for myself. It's actually from God that he channels through me. It begins with love for God, and then it moves us out to love others as we're being more and more sanctified. I want us to look more specifically at a phrase in verse 3. The beginning of verse 3, he says, eager to maintain the unity. I want us to look at the word eager and the word maintain. The unity is important, but I think for the most part we probably understand that. But I want us to focus for a moment. What's the word eager mean? Why is that there? And what does he mean by maintaining? So eager carries with it the idea of being zealous for something. 
to have diligence, to have an, make an effort. It, it's active on our part. Guys, hear me say this. Unity in the body of Christ, unity in a church family, unity in your own family, unity in, 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 on a team, it never happens by, um, by being passive. It's always an active thing. Like, we're not going to just sit still and go, well, I hope our church is unified. No, like, we have to be active in the process, right? Because if we are passive with it, we know as humans it begins to falter. So it's, there's an active aspect to it. Also, the word maintain. Why does he tell us to maintain unity? unity maintain means to, to preserve or to keep what's already there. As Christians, we don't create unity. God creates unity. We'll look in a moment how he does that, what that looks like, but he creates unity. We can never create it. He has made us one in the body of Christ, but we are to be active in helping maintain it. Does that make sense? So you can't have the willpower, by golly, this church is going to be unified. Like we can't will it to be. Rather, we acknowledge that the Father gives unity and we're to walk consistent in that, helping to maintain that unity. And then the verse goes on in verse 3 and says that we're to have unity of the Spirit. Unity in the body of Christ is absolutely impossible unless we're walking by the Spirit. Galatians 5, Paul talks about are we walking by the flesh or are we walking by the Spirit? Guys, we as a church family, in all matters, in this season or any other season, we must be walking by the Spirit, and when we walk by the Spirit, then unity comes in the body of Christ. And then verses 4 through 6, they all fit together for the, this, this point that's on your sermon notes, and that is that God is the source of our unity. I've already alluded to that fact. I said that God makes us one. He creates unity. We're called to maintain it. But we see very clearly in these three verses, four, five, and six, that God is the author or the source of unity and that unity is only by him and only through him. In these three verses, we have seven different phrases or words that are used, all with the word one in front of it. He says there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. Many um, commentators will say it's very likely that verses 4 through 6 was an early confessional hymn that the early church may have sung and or an early creed. It just carries with it, by golly, this is what we believe. This is who we are. This is who God has made us, and he has made us one, one body, given us one spirit. He's given us one hope. He's given us one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. I want you to notice that in these seven ones that are listed here, all three of the persons of the Trinity are listed or the triune God, however you want to refer to God. The three persons of God are listed here. We worship one God experienced in the three persons. So we see the Spirit, we see the Lord, which is Jesus, or who is Jesus, and we see God and Father. The triune, the Trinity God is the model of unity. 
like I don't understand, I can't wrap my brain around it, but I know it's true that we worship one God who is experiencing three persons, and those three persons all are one, therefore they are in agreement, they work together, they're not divided, they're not doing their own agenda. In fact, we're studying the, 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 and experiencing God right now where Jesus says several times, I only do what my Father does. I watch him, I do what he does. And so the Trinity shows us the perfect picture of unity and is an example for us as the body of Christ that we're to be unified as well. And then I want you to consider this. The unity that's found in the Trinity is everlasting and unbreakable. No one can break apart the unity of the Trinity. Likewise, when the Spirit is at work in our lives, in the body of Christ, then nothing and no one should be able to sever the unity that's here because the Spirit is leading us. So I want to call us to live out this truth that we are unified by the triune God. You see, the closer we draw to God the closer we draw to one another. I don't know if you've ever seen this little illustration or not, uh, but if you were to draw a triangle, I know that's not a real good triangle, but if you were to draw a triangle, sometimes this is used like in marriage counseling or whatever, and you'll say, okay, the husband is at the bottom corner over here, and the wife is at the bottom corner over here, and they could try to get closer to each other, and that would try to work, but then they wouldn't be any closer to God. But if you get closer to God, you work your way up that triangle, you get closer to God, what happens to the two people? They draw closer together too, right? So it's similar in a church family. If each one of us are seeking to walk in a way that's worthy of the manner in which we are called, if all of us are seeking to be more and more sanctified, if all of us are seeking to be people who have humility, gentleness, and patience, then we're going to grow closer to God, we are growing closer to God, and therefore he will draw us closer to each other. I also want you to see this. When we talk about unity in the body of Christ, we are not talking about unity at any cost. We're talking about unity and who God himself is. Got a friend in town this weekend, and he halfway threatened to preach during the sermon, but I told him he couldn't. Haley, his daughter, said, no way, Dad, you can't do that. But David and I were talking last night over dinner. We hadn't seen each other in 30 years, and we sat over dinner and talked about some other college friends of ours who are actually, one of them is on staff at a church. And that church is... Um, well beyond affirming of homosexual activity, like totally cool with it, right? So we talked about how much we love our friend. We would like to see them see it differently, more consistent with what the scripture says. And so as much as I love my friend, this unity we're talking about cannot be carried over from me to her and her family as much as I love them because unity in that sense would be unity at any cost. Oh, well, you're a part of a church. Y'all just happen to believe something totally against what scripture says, but we're cool with each other. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm cool with them. They're my friends, but we don't have that unity. Does that make sense? So we got to be clear that we're not talking, and I, and I, wanna, I don't want to just pick on that one sin. Like, it could be greed, it could be um, dishonesty, it could be uh, lying, it could be all kinds of things. We must have unity in who God is. That's where unity is found. So I want us to look real quickly at these seven phrases or words. One body. That's the church. Guys, sad to say, 
Like even this morning in my experience in God class, I said, if you've checked out Christian Twitterverse lately, you'll see Christians just attacking each other, going for the jugular on Twitter. Like there is so much hate and venom out there among so-called Christians. Guys, God is calling us to live as a unified body. And it's important that we see that we are one body. We're to have one spirit. We're to see there's one spirit. The fruit of the spirit from Galatians, you may want to jot this down. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 talks about the fruit of the spirit. In this text, in these six verses of Ephesians, of the nine aspects of, spirit, uh, of fruit of the spirit, we see four of them listed in this text. Love, peace, patience, and gentleness. The only way we can experience these things is if the fruit of the spirit is in us that we're experiencing the one spirit. It says that we have one hope. If you're a member of Living Hope, you know that our, uh, our church name comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And in there we see that Jesus is our one hope. He alone is our hope. Since we have one Lord, that's referring to Jesus himself. Jesus is our Lord. He is our Savior. It says that there's one faith. The faith that we have in Jesus as our Savior is the common denominator. That's how the Spirit brings us together. I know a whole lot of you in here could care less about the Dallas Cowboys or the other things that I'm interested in, and yet we put up with each other at times, and even though we don't identify, maybe I'm not, uh, 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 Nathan all the time talks about how, I'll use his words, nerdy he is, like he knows things better than I do, and yet there's a commonality here because of our common faith in Jesus Christ. Whenever you go out in public and you meet somebody for the very first time, they may be from another country, they may speak a different language, they may vote a little bit differently than you, but you may find out that they love Jesus and there is a common bond there because we have one faith. We have one baptism. You're like, okay, is that water baptism or spirit? Yes, it's both. Like whenever you get saved, you should follow the Lord in baptism of water, but the Spirit comes upon you, and if there's one baptism, then that means baptism by water and by Spirit. We're baptized into his body. And then I love how it finishes. It says there's one God, verse 6, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is no doubt whatsoever in verse 6 that there is an exclusive nature of who God is. There's no doubt in this that he is sovereign over everything. He says he is one God, one Father, of all, over all, through all, and in all. God is the source of unity. I want us to spend the next five minutes or so considering what do we do with everything that's in this text. How do we apply it, apply it to our lives? You'll see at the very bottom of your notes, it says this. We are called, and I intentionally use that word called because of what we see in verse 1. We are called to give ourselves to maintain unity in the body. God calls us to do it. We're to have an active role in it. We're to serve in helping to maintain it, and it's going to cost us something. We have to give the effort while the Lord works in us to experience this unity. Guys, God is calling us to maintain unity. It's his initiative. It's not our initiative. If we try to force unity, as I described earlier, we're going to fall every time. But if we rely on the unity that we find in the scripture here, then we will experience the ability to maintain unity. But we must understand that unity doesn't happen passively. I mentioned that earlier. We must give a diligent, intentional effort as God works in us to maintain that unity. 
But God, not only are we called by God to maintain unity, did you know that if you're a member of this church, this church calls you to maintain unity as well? You're like, what, huh? All right, so if you're a member of the church, you'll remember, hopefully, that we sign a membership agreement or a covenant when we become a member of the church. And there are five primary areas that I'm not going to walk through this morning, but there are five primary areas. The second one, does anybody want to know what the second one is? It's unity. Here's what the second commitment says. I will protect the unity of my church family. So why should we maintain unity? Because we've been called to it, first and foremost, by God. And then in consistent fashion with what God calls us to, we as a church family have called one another to protect this unity. Guys, God is glorified. If we want to bring glory to God through his church, God is glorified when his church is unified. And my call to us is that in any season, including this one right now that we happen to be walking in, may we be found as a church body who loves one another, who loves God first and foremost, and therefore we are walking in unity. To maintain unity requires some hard work on our part. I'm going to kind of hit some bullet points and maybe you want to jot down, especially any that speak to you specifically. Here's some ways that we show hard work to maintain unity. First and foremost, we refuse to gossip. And we refuse to listen to gossip. You're like, I don't gossip. I just listen to it. That ain't cool either, right? Like gossip, do away with it, avoid it, flee from it. If someone begins gossiping with you, stop it right there. Don't entertain gossip. The second thing goes with that. What do we do instead of gossiping? We go straight to the person or to the leaders that we have a concern with, and we go directly to them and in, interact with them, and we encourage others to do the same. So this morning, if we walk out and somebody goes, man, that Alan sure is a lame preacher, don't listen to them. They may be right, but don't listen to them and say, have you talked to Alan about that, right? The third thing. Always seek to assume the best about the other person. If we're not careful, we'll go, you know what? I do think he's lame. No, you need to go, okay, all right, he's a little quirky. He talks about the Cowboys too much. He does this and that. But here's the deal. I believe that God is using him. I, I, I'm trying not to make that about myself. I'm saying any conversation, right? Any conversation. Here's the fourth thing. Don't keep a record of wrongs. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? One of the things about love is love does not keep a record of wrongs. Number five, pray for our church body and pray with other church members. If you're available on Wednesday mornings, we are praying on Wednesday mornings at 7 o'clock for about 45 minutes to an hour in the fellowship room behind the cafe. We would love for you to come and join us on Wednesday mornings. But you can pray for your church family and with other church members lots of other times at hope group on a phone call when you get together and eat lunch or whatever i think this is number six it's next to the last anyway we another way we work hard for unity is humbly live in community with other church members see if i'm not living in community with other, other church members then i can't really maintain unity I don't even have an opportunity to live it out or not live it out like we need to be living in community with each other what does that mean jump in a hope group if you're not in one of our small groups, I encourage you to sign up to be in a hope group. And you can go on the church website, you can go on the church center app, you can catch me after the church, and I'll tell you, you can call the church office during the course of the week, be in a hope group. Another way that we can humbly live in community with each other is by serving. 
Find a place to serve. And you'll serve alongside some other folks. And then the last thing is this. To maintain unity involves sacrifice. Some of your desires, some of your wants, some of your preferences, some of my desires, some of my wants, some of my preferences need to go out the door and have unity in Christ and be willing to sacrifice some things. I want to finish by giving you this. As good as unity is for us, it must never be that we seek unity for our sake. Rather, our motive for unity should be to the glory of God and so that others will see his glory as well. Perhaps you're familiar with Jesus' prayer for us in John chapter 17. The night that he'll be arrested, the day before he'll be crucified, he prays for his followers and then he prays for us. Look at John 17, beginning in verse 20, going through the end of the chapter. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, talking about the apostles and the disciples that were with him on that night, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, if we're followers of Jesus. And here's what he's praying for us, that they may all be one, unified, just as you, Father, and I are in me and I in you. They are unified, therefore we should be unified. That they may also be in us, so that the world, listen to what it says, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. And that they may become perfectly one. So that the world, why? The world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father. Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, and the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Ultimately, unity in the body of Christ is so that the world may know Jesus. You see, the world sees, and they know when we're united. The world sees and they know when we're divided. If we're divided, they don't want to have anything to do with God or his church. You see, when we're united, we will stay on mission. What is our mission? To be a disciple who makes disciples. And when we're united, we'll stay on that mission. But as soon as we get divided, we'll get off mission. We may be doing some quote-unquote good things, but we'll get off task. God wants us united, so what does Satan want? He wants the exact opposite. So what's Satan going to do? He's going to use everything he can to leverage disunity, including this season in our church's life. He'll seek to constantly divide us. Our neighbors and the lost around the world need us to be united so that they can see Christ in us and so that we will take the opportunity to speak Christ to them. So guys and gals, I'm encouraging us that we would walk in unity all to the glory of God. I don't know what God's doing in your life right now, but I know that he's calling us to be a united people in this body of Christ. I know he's calling some of you to say yes to Jesus for the first time. He's calling others of you to say yes to membership in this church body. He's calling some of us to go and apologize to someone. He's calling some of us to just spend time in prayer. But whatever God is calling you to do, we must say yes to him this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in prayer.
And after that prayer, some uh, offering plates will be passed. If you came prepared to give financially, you may do so. If you filled out a connection card, you can drop it in there. If you've made a spiritual decision or have a prayer request, put that on the card, drop that in there. And then as we sing together, I'll be down front. And if you want to come and pray with me, I would love the opportunity to do that. The altar is open for you to come and pray. Some have already used it this morning, even during the singing portion earlier. You may pray there at your seat, but let's spend some time allowing God to do his work in our lives so that we can walk out of this united for his sake and for his glory that the world may know him. Let me pray for us.